0: Hello and welcome to the Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with uh, Pastor Mike Zarling, and uh, I'll just begin with that blessing that Jesus spoke in his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, uh, for they will be filled. Hopefully we fill you up today. We are going to take a look at the Gospel of Mark, beginning with chapter 5, and uh, last week we were talking a little bit about uh, stories from our uh, trip to Israel, and you you said that you've also been to Israel. And uh, one thing I remember with this opening account of Jesus and the demon-possessed man and uh, the herd of pigs is that uh, our tour guide was a, a Jewish man, but he was very well uh, familiar with the Gospels and the history of Jesus and his life. And uh, he said when he showed us the Gerizines, that uh, south and east corner of the Lake of Galilee, uh, we got off the bus and he began his little spiel by saying, uh, this is the place where uh, Jesus made deviled pork.
1: <laughs> I think my tour guide probably used the same joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you've got in Matthew, or Mark chapter 5 of Jesus dispossessing a man who is possessed by a demon. And then the demons ask Jesus not to send them back to hell, but rather to send them into a herd of pigs. And we brought this up last week in that in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark is trying to demonstrate the credentials Jesus has, that this is the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so here's one more of those credentials. Uh, We sing, in a mighty fortress is our God. This world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged the deed is done. One little word can fell him. And Mark records that the demons are terrified of Jesus. They don't want to go back to their hellish prison. But demons are so out of control that as soon as they have control of the pigs, the pigs lose control. And they dive headlong over the cliff, sending the demons back to hell. And then, Pastor Lightning. if you look toward the end of this section, verses 18 through 20, what do you make of why this man, who wants to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, that Jesus tells him, you go home to your people and then tell them everything the Lord has done for you? Why do you think Jesus does that?
0: I I was actually giving some thought to that this week. When you think of how many times uh, we hear of uh, uh, people thinking of conspiracies or starting movements, uh, whether it's a political movement or a social movement, um, that's not what Jesus is doing here you what a typical sinful human would do is if somebody says hey i want to join your movement we we would say hey yeah let's get you on board let's uh, uh get as many people as we can and get really big and popular uh and and jesus does something so peculiar that uh, it it has to make you stop and think he he must be god in the flesh he must be a messiah uh because he he doesn't even care about have e- either that or he's crazy <laughs> uh but the fact is uh, that he is concerned about the individual, that one at a time uh, is how he wins souls. Uh, and he says, I'm not going to start this big fancy movement and, and gain lots of popularity. Uh, I can just speak words, and those words uh, win hearts, and you can speak. Uh, see, imagine Jesus saying to the demon-possessed, formerly demon-possessed man, you can speak words, and uh, they will be they will be about me, and they will carry the spirit that changes people's hearts.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, Jesus is also saying to this formerly possessed man, he's going to be a more effective witness among his hometown people that knew what he was like before. And I liken that to sometimes when we have young people or maybe second career men who go on to Martin Luther College and then maybe to the seminary. And then they get calls back to their home congregations or to their neighborhood uh, because they can reach out to their neighbors, their cultures. That happens sometimes in Hmong communities. Uh, I'm working on the district mission board with a Korean school, and so they, they want Korean teachers to come. Or maybe you have an african American man that goes to be a teacher and then is called back into the inner city because people know him and he knows the culture, and so there is an advantage, just like this man had an advantage that people knew who he was, where he came from, and now their ears are going to be open to what Jesus has to say through this man and then you go on to uh the next few verses as. Mark combines uh, the account of a woman who is bleeding with her menstrual cycle for 12 years. And then that woman is healed by just a touch of Jesus' robe. And then Jesus leaves her and goes to Jairus' daughter, who is also 12 years old, and then raises her from the dead. And one of the things you think of here, this happens a A few times in these chapters we're covering is that Mark translates the Aramaic, uh, you know, like Taliathakum, and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Again, like we talked about last week, that Mark is writing to a Gentile audience.
0: And uh, this really reminds me of the course I teach at uh, our Lutheran high school uh, it's called The Christian Church, and it, it covers the book of the second half of the book of Acts. One of the things that's kind of interesting to uh, do with God's Word is to look at the ways that the Gospels and the book of Acts overlap, uh, and particularly how there are a lot of similarities between the ministry carried out by Jesus and then by Peter in the first half of Acts, and then by Paul in the second half of Acts. Uh, And one of them uh, is this business with uh, touching Jesus's robe, uh, that there were similar things, miracles that Peter performed and then that Paul performed uh, with simply touching cloth that had contacted their bodies. Uh, It's as if God is saying uh, that he gives his seal of approval to his messengers. Uh, And then uh, the really kind of interesting one is, uh, just as you said, with Talitha Kum, uh, in Acts, Peter raises a woman named Tabitha, uh, and he says to her when she's dead, "Tabitha, get up." And you, you can, you have to imagine that he was he was speaking the Aramaic to her as well, and would have said, "Tabitha, Get Tabitha, get up." Um, it, one other little quick, kind of funny story I heard one time from a retired pastor that he was teaching a Bible class on this uh, section of Scripture, and uh, Jesus is bustling along on his way to get to Jairus' house. Uh, And then he is stopped by this incident with the woman who is uh, plagued by bleeding. And uh, when uh, she receives her healing, um, it says in verse 33 that uh, Jesus sort of called her forward, or at least was looking for who touched him. And uh, it says in verse 33, "'She came forward, fell down in front of him, and told him the whole truth.'" And uh, this woman in the pastor's Bible class said, They must have been there for a long time. <laughs> she told him everything. Uh, but, the, but that shows you how interested in the personal individual that Jesus is. Uh, he, he will stay there and listen to everything that you have to say uh, and then still go and conquer death.
1: And that death is what I wanted to talk about, too. Here's a little girl, 12 years old, who has died one of the saddest funerals that I have done in my 25 years in the ministry was for a little boy that was only a week old. And what's interesting in looking back is the same year that I did a funeral for this week old baby, I had also done a funeral for a lady who had lived to be 102. And yet, it was the same resurrection comfort that I was able to give in the uh, in the sermon of the funeral and in my personal meetings with the families, you know, the same resurrection comfort Jesus gives in this story as he raises this little girl back to life, that Jesus has power over death.
0: It's just asleep.
1: Just a and, and with that, too, I wanted to quote another hymn verse, because this happens to be a favorite hymn in funerals. I have another funeral uh, for one of our saints next week. Uh, verse seven of Abide with Me, hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me.
0: I'll just uh, make one more point about the uh, chapter five and the the woman with the issue of bleeding. Um, there's kind of a a funny little thing if you see the human side of the authors that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. uh, God didn't make them mindless robots, as they wrote, they were real human people. Uh, And uh, Luke records this similar incident, and you can imagine as a doctor, he would have been very interested in uh, things with a a woman and uh, her bleeding problem. Uh, But uh, then Mark says. that a certain woman was there who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under the care of many physicians and had spent all that she had. And it's just kind of interesting that Luke leaves out that little detail (laughs) while Mark is not afraid to sort of uh, take a jab at conventional medicine there. Uh, That doesn't make either one uh, better or worse than the other. It's just kind of interesting to think about the human authors. Let
1: me get to chapter six, Jesus calls the 12 and sends them out two by two. He sends them out into the public ministry. And I was thinking, Pastor Lightning, of, you know, what do you say to young people when they consider the ministry? Because Jesus sends them out. They're not supposed to take an extra cloak when it gets cold. They're not supposed to take sandals or food with them. And one of the things that I remind the young people is they're not going to be wealthy as a Wells pastor. Or a teacher. They're going to earn a bachelor's degree and, as a pastor, a master's degree, and yet they are not going to be paid according to their degrees. They will sacrifice for the ministry. Uh, I remember early on in my days in the ministry, and my wife Shelly was a stay at home mom, and she does the finances, and I would come home after my wife would pay the quarterly taxes, and I knew what happened without ever having to say a word because. She was crying. You know, she said, We have less than $100 in the bank account. And you sacrifice for the ministry. Thankfully, we're more comfortable now. Uh, but one of the greatest joys that I have as a pastor is seeing more and more of our young people from my congregation here going on to become pastors and teachers. Uh, because that's my spiritual wealth. And I know the Lord is going to take care of them as called workers, but he does that through the salaries and benefits provided by God's people. And it's wise for our listeners to to remember that God takes care of his called workers through you.
0: And you can see that uh, Jesus doesn't really um, sugarcoat the entrance into the ministry at all with the way the chapter starts uh it, he himself was a dishonored uh, prophet w- in his hometown uh people thought well we knew you when you grew up uh you can't be anything special uh, and so they uh they took offense at him and uh there there's that mysterious little thing to think about Jesus being amazed uh he he was truly human uh, and so he he felt that emotion that we Uh, have felt uh, in verse 6 there, amazement. Uh, Not in a good way. He was amazed at their unbelief, uh, but then he moved on. And uh, as you said, uh, don't expect to to get rich by um, ministering God's word.
1: And then Mark goes back in time and he talks about John the Baptist being killed because some of these uh, followers and disciples of Jesus were uh, John's disciples first, and so this would have hit them hard, but Mark is also bringing in the the point that people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead.
0: It it speaks to what we discussed last week as far as this not being a typical chronological history report like we would uh, maybe expect or want today. Uh, Mark is making a point, and it, it Dovetails nicely with the discussion we just had about ministry uh, and how you can not only can you expect dishonor from uh, your your hometown as a prophet trying to preach to people who knew you when, uh, but you can even expect uh, death at the hands of absolute unbelievers or pagans. Of course, Herod wouldn't have wanted to be uh, cast as a a pagan or an unbeliever. He needed, at least for his public image, to look like he was some kind of a a Jew, even though he wasn't. Uh, But uh, you can tell by his lifestyle that um, he didn't really care much for uh, the The true message of repentance, uh, and yet you can also see the Holy Spirit at work in the fact that um, Herod was intrigued by listening to John when John would preach for him uh but uh, there there's so much we could say about this uh fascinating account where uh there's all this politicking going on between the uh, behind the scenes uh between two um people that uh, had an affair uh, and and thought they would be happier in their new marriage. And then uh, they're trying to play mind games with each other to get what they want. And, and Herod doesn't want to put John to death, but his, uh, his, his brother's wife does want to get him put to death. And so she works it out to play this trick on him. Uh, I don't know what direction you want to take it. There's lots we could talk about.
1: Yeah, I was, I was ready to move on to, uh, them moving on. If you're ready to sure, move on, sure. Uh, that after this, and Mark says, you know, Jesus is worn out. Verse thirty-one. Jesus said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while." You can imagine how tired Jesus was. He's been going on nonstop for who knows how long. And I think a good practice for us is when we read a section of scripture is to apply it first to ourselves. Pastor Lighton and I are taught to do that. When we preach a sermon, we preach the text first to ourselves and then we can preach it to our people. And, you know, Jesus being tired, I think of, uh, you know, my Sundays lately, the last few months, they have been really long. Uh, We have three services on Sunday morning. Then a lot of times now I'm having a funeral or a private baptism or I'm doing some counseling or even a funeral. Uh, after after church. So I'm pretty worn out and I'm not getting my Sunday pastor nap in either. And yet, uh, as tired as I get, and and by Sunday afternoon, I will have preached that sermon eight times in, in within 24 hours because I practice it five times before I preach it. So uh, I'm pretty worn out. And yet, when I have that private baptism or I'm marrying this couple or I'm Uh, Sending God's saint into heaven and giving God's comfort to his his loved ones in a funeral, I'm energized. Uh, I'm ready to keep on going. Physically tired, but mentally and spiritually energized. And I think that's the way Jesus was. As tired as he was, and he just wants to rest with his disciples, he's energized because he's still preaching and healing God's people.
0: I I don't have much to say about this other than uh, just what you, you said. It, this isn't the Gospel of Mark, but in John's Gospel, after Jesus talks to the woman at the well, uh, what does he say to his disciples? Uh, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Uh, yes, you need strengthening for your body, but uh, yeah, that is interesting to think of preaching God's word and teaching or sharing it and how that can invigorate you. Um that, that is, that's really all about, uh, well, and then we get the physical food with the miracle that Jesus did of multiplying the, the fish and the loaves of bread. Uh, but uh, that's, yeah, that's really all I have on that section.
1: And if you go to the next chapter, I know Pastor Hagen, uh, that when he went through a number of these chapters this week, he talked about uh, the opposition, That Jesus faces and you see that again in chapter 7 that uh, the Pharisees and the experts of the law are coming to Jesus and they're challenging him because he and his disciples are eating with unclean or unwashed hands and you have the tradition of the elders as opposed to God's clear word Uh, and then Jesus goes on to talk about A cleanliness, that cleanliness is not, uh, you know, washing our hands and so forth. It's not what goes into a man. It's what comes out of a man. And it's really, he's talking about our sinful nature. Uh, And there I want to share a story with you I read recently uh, that 22-year-old Elliot Scott stole a tow truck in Chicago not realizing that companies put GPS trackers in most of their vehicles. Scott drove away with his grand theft prize only to have the owner of the truck call the police and give him, give them Scott's location. And then police immediately responded to the scene, but they didn't need the GPS data. You see, what happened, Pastor Lightning, is while he was sitting in the driver's seat, Scott, the guy who stole the truck, he called the police. And he reported that the owner of the truck had pointed a gun at him while he was stealing the truck. Now, I tell you that story because it shows the stupidity of uh, that man, but it also shows the stupidity of all of us. And with the Pharisees, in the beginning of Mark chapter 7, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, which is our, our heart. The point is not what we do or don't do. That's what the Pharisees were, were getting at, washing hands, doing the, this tradition or that tradition. The point is what is in our heart that motivates us to do or not do some things. Because you're going to have all kinds of people who are following certain man-made mandates or godly laws, but if the heart is not in it, then God still views it as a sin others may appear outwardly nice but inwardly they're judging every person who is not doing what they think that they should be doing and jesus whole point here is god sees those sins of the heart
0: i'll tell you what um it got assigned to me as my uh, very first seminary sermon uh, mark 7 uh, the, the selected <laughs> verses from uh, one through uh, twenty-three, uh, and so I, I've and I've and I've preached on it a couple of times in my ministry too. So uh, I'm actually trying to resist the uh, urge right now just to launch into a whole uh, tirade about all sorts of different things in these verses, um, and and maybe I'll. I'll do that by uh, hearkening back to... uh, I I know you kind of moved on from chapter six a little bit, but it it struck me, we didn't say anything about Jesus walking on water. And and I don't want to say much, but uh, here's a a thought I had. Did you know there was actually another miracle that is sort of overlooked with that miracle of walking on water? I don't think it's in Mark's gospel, but uh, one of the other ones uh, says that as soon as Jesus got into the boat... They arrived at the other side of the lake, and and it's it's so it's such a brief little line that you could easily miss it. Uh, but it's true that that the, Jesus climbed into the boat, and suddenly the storm was done, or uh, they weren't scared anymore, and uh, they were at the other side of the lake. And so I often like to just say, uh, "Why did Jesus cross the lake
1: <laughs> to get to the other side?" To
0: get to the other side. Yeah. <laughs>
1: What do, you, what do you want to bring up about the, the kind of a strange story of Jesus calling the Syrophoenician, the Greek woman, a dog?
0: Uh, this is one of my favorite sections of scripture to talk about. Um, there's so Again, so many things. Uh, this wasn't my first seminary sermon, but I, I have preached on it before. And actually, it's a, a classmate of mine that I've heard talk about this that really opened my eyes. Um, this woman was listening very closely to the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, in other words, she never heard him tell her to go away. She never heard, she, yes, she heard him call her a dog. Uh, she heard him suggest that uh, she didn't deserve anything good from him. But she was listening very closely to the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, and she never heard him say uh, there is no hope for you. Uh, get out of here. Um, and and she kept hanging on to those words that he spoke. Uh, and and she was very bold with asking him, uh, "Please drive this demon out of my daughter." Jesus was on vacation. You know, he w- he was trying to get some rest and relaxation with his disciples outside of Israel. Uh, and uh, and he was being forced to go into the office more or less to work on his vacation time. Uh, And and finally, uh, he he granted the request that she had of him.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly it. She is persistent, and that's why Jesus says that uh, she has a great faith. He commends her for it, that uh, she heard a yes, even though his words sound like a no. And I want you as listeners to think about how often you pray, or think of how often we pray in the prayer of the church for individuals. We pray for healing, we pray for faith, we pray for peace, we pray for protection, we pray for miracles. You know what? I have buried plenty of people that we have prayed for that problems, even though we are praying for them, they seem to be getting worse and worse. We're still waiting and suffering. So what do we do? Do we turn and uh, leave Jesus? Do we leave in a huff? Do we tell him off to his face? Do we act like he's treating us like a dog? Although this Canaanite woman didn't do any of that, uh, that she says, yes, Lord. I may be a dog, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She is looking for scraps of grace. She shakes it all off. And like I said, she finds a yes inside of his no. And my encouragement to you is when you're praying, when you're acting in Christian service in your vocation, look for that yes inside of Jesus' apparent no.
0: And, uh that that's yeah uh that's something that uh you can also find as as he moves on to uh, perform the miracle uh with the man that had the speech impediment um and even more so uh you get again Jesus focusing on one at a time the the single uh person all by himself that not not with the crowd uh, Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd and uh he may not do this kind of a miracle with everybody that he heals, uh, he gives very individualized um, help to this man. Um, and uh, even with each of us, uh, he says, that, or Mark records the very syllables that came out of Jesus' mouth. I think if if ever you have a, a student or a young child that's wondering, why, why do we need to know Ephatha and that that means be open, that we could just learn the miracle and that would be good enough. Uh, But no, the Holy Spirit said, I want to give you the exact syllables that Jesus spoke so that those syllables can hit your eardrums now, uh, and uh, he can give you the personalized uh, grace and forgiveness and salvation that he gave to this man that he healed.
1: And it's interesting that when you focus on the different miracles that Mark records, that there's a woman who touches Jesus, that Jesus... Uh, maybe healing others just by speaking, and they're in the presence around him. Uh, the woman uh, who just was called a dog, Jesus healed her daughter who is demon possessed from a distance. But here, Jesus does something rather unique. Mark records, Jesus took him aside in private, away from the crowd. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. That Jesus used spit. So, I wanted to share with you something I remember reading from comedian Paul Reiser's book. Uh, he said this about mother spit. I saw a kid who had some dried up food on his face. His mother took out a tissue, spit on the tissue, and rubbed it into the kid's face. This goes on in communities around our country on a daily basis. It's disgusting, but it sure does work, doesn't it? There's something in mother saliva that cleans like nobody's business. All women, once they give birth, their enzymes change and saliva becomes Ajax. It'll clean anything a baby's face, a countertop, a Buick. You get enough mothers, you could do a whole car in 30, 40 minutes. So, mother spit may be great for cleaning, but Jesus' touch and his spit, uh, his saliva is something even greater. It's used for healing. What had been broken, Jesus mends with the creator's touch. The great physician is at work. And then also notice the earthiness of it all. Fingers in the dirt, mud on the eyes, God coming down to reach us, reaching down to where we are, opening eyes, creating faith, and saving souls.
0: God, you, you, you kind of stole my word. I was just about to say that in Jesus, we have a very earthy God uh this is this is what he is he is a down to earth kind of god uh who is not afraid to get dirty to uh deal with our most disgusting and despicable uh hearts that that he described earlier in chapter 7 full of adultery greed wickedness deceit uh immorality and so on uh and 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 he cleans it uh, he cleans it with his spit um uh, yeah nothing else to add to that
1: And then let's go on to chapter 8 as Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And he's just fed these people with a miracle. And what do the Pharisees ask? They ask for a sign from heaven. They are unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah, even though they have just seen a miracle from heaven. And Jesus refuses because he is... Uh, he sees that they are just trying to get Jesus to jump to do their wishes and gain control over him
0: exactly and uh it's it's all it's far too easy for uh students of the bible to look at the miracles of Jesus and just always sort of end up jumping to the same conclusions. Uh, It's not bad, but it's also not the best way to handle scripture. Uh, And what I mean is, we just talked not too long ago about Jesus multiplying the bread and fishes for 5,000 people, and here he does it for 4,000, but the Holy Spirit does not waste his ink. Uh, He does not uh, just want us to say here, well, this proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, and, but there's more difference here than just the number of people that one was 5,000 and one was 4,000. And maybe what I I am driving at is that, uh, these are people in verse two, it says they were, they were with him for three days. They weren't like the people, the 5,000 crowd that, uh, came uh, to Jesus looking for a free handout. More or less. Yeah, those people kind of listened to Jesus teach for a little bit, but uh, the main thing they wanted was more bread. John's gospel shows us that about the 5,000. These people were with Jesus for three days and they wanted to learn. Uh, And maybe the takeaway is uh, Jesus will take care of your needs, uh, whether you are interested in what he has to say or not. uh, So why not be interested in what he has to say?
1: And then Jesus uses this as a lead into talking to his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees. So Pastor Lightning, what is the yeast of the Pharisees and do we still need to be concerned about it today?
0: Uh are you bringing this up because of my homebrewing hobby?
1: Oh no, I wasn't. But that's a great segue.
0: <laughs> no, it, it it's true. Uh, what does yeast do? Well, if you bake bread, you know that yeast makes the bread rise. Uh, when you brew with or, or make wine, uh, yeast is uh, it 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 makes pressure inside of whatever the container is, uh, and you need to let the pressure off because it is all of these microscopic organisms that are. Uh, chewing up the the sugars and making a byproduct that is alcohol, uh, and that it puffs things up. And this is what sin does to us. It it makes us puffed up. Uh, So absolutely, we need to be aware of it still today, uh, even if we don't have a group named the Pharisees anymore. Um, I I just kind of think, again, you see the human side of Jesus, that his disciples are so confused because he must have kind of dropped this on them out of the blue. You can see them getting into the boat and they're crossing the lake. And uh, maybe Jesus is just kind of sitting and thinking about that encounter where they asked from the sign from heaven. And uh, all of a sudden he just blurts out, uh, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Sadducees, and and they're they're just confused by where is this coming from, and so they think it must have something to do uh, with the having uh, bread or not. And he says, no, that wasn't my point. (laughs) Um, uh, But uh, yeah, if ever you're confused by Jesus' words, you're not the first one.
1: And you know, we still do need to be concerned about the yeast of the Pharisees. That's false teachings. And so the encouragement for you as listeners is uh, listen carefully, read diligently, look for yeast. It's still out there today in churches, in whatever our our culture is pushing on us, whatever agenda politicians are trying to get us to accept, that yeast of the Pharisees is around today. And it's seen in pride, self-righteousness, false doctrines man-made mandates or executive orders or congressional laws or Supreme Court rulings that are in direct opposition to the clear and simple doctrines that God lays out for Christians in his word.
0: So maybe a good way even to measure what what do you mean by false doctrine is, is go back to that analogy of yeast. Does it puff you up? Does it Does it make you prideful in some way in yourself so it's just for example, if uh, people think that uh, you're not truly saved until you have said a certain prayer and asked the Lord Jesus into your heart, uh, that could be a source of puffing up or pride that's that's a good example of how to uh, figure out what is or is not false doctrine.
1: And then Jesus and his disciples go to Bethsaida and Jesus heals. Uh, a blind man, and it's interesting at the end that uh he warns the people there uh, not to tell anyone about about him as the Christ. you know why is that uh well, I think it's because uh well i I like it because I had to bring in my superhero part here is that uh, this is why so many superheroes have secret identities you know, Batman is Bruce Wayne. Clark Kent is Superman. Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Hulk is Bruce Banner. And people often see these superheroes in their miraculous feats that they accomplish, but they miss the whole person. That each of these superheroes contributes something to their make-believe society in the form of their secret identity. That Bruce Wayne gives millions of dollars to charities. Clark Kent is a famous reporter. Peter Parker and Bruce Banner are scientists, but they're two sides of the same person. And the people to whom Jesus is ministering to, like in this instance of healing this blind man, they only see Jesus as a superhero, someone who does miraculous, powerful feats, and they're missing Jesus' secret identity, which is. Uh, the one he is trying to demonstrate uh, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he didn't just come to save people from their illnesses or demon possession, he came to save them from their sins.
0: And you get a good example of what would happen if uh, Jesus did not keep his real identity secret. Uh, Even one of his own disciples uh, was confused about what it was that the Messiah came to do. Jesus began to teach them, it says in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders. Uh, He was speaking plainly to them. And then Peter took him aside and tried to set Jesus straight and, and say, no, you're supposed to be the superhero. You're supposed to be uh, the, the great leader that uh, gives us earthly victory. And Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan, and uh, offer all of us this beautiful teaching of the cross. And it's not the cross of salvation, that Jesus died on it's the cross that we each take up as individuals um it's it's not how we redeem ourselves or get forgiveness uh this is what we can expect on this earth Jesus says is suffering and uh how would you try to get across the point today when crosses are seen mainly as a decoration and a beautiful thing uh that how can you get the point across to modern man that uh this w- this was really offensive in in Jesus time.
1: Yeah, and this is the first time that Jesus brings up the cross in Mark's gospel. Uh he alludes to it here and then he's going to be much clearer. And it is accurate when people say, well, this is my cross I have to bear of working with uh unbelievers, atheists at work or uh having children that are pulling away from God or their illness and so forth. And they are accurate, but I always stress, too, that a cross isn't just pain. It's not suffering. It is death. You didn't go, go to the cross and then, oh, that hurt for a while and then get off. You went to the cross and you died. And that's what we have to remember. It's it's suffering, it's persecution, and it's death.
0: And uh, and it's offensive. It, it makes me think of a, a story I heard about... Uh, some people who were talking—I forget if it was Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses—but uh, if if ever you notice them, uh, they they never have crosses on the tops of their kingdom halls or their uh, gathering places. And what I heard was one time uh, that some Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses were talking to a Lutheran pastor and saying, uh, "Well, would you, you know, do, don't you realize that's an instrument of death? Would you put an electric chair or a?" A, a lethal injection syringe on the top of your church, and uh, that's hardly even a good comparison because lethal injection syringes or electric chairs were not torture tools, they were just killing tools. But uh, the pastor kind of quickly on his feet thought, uh, yeah, I think uh, if that was how Jesus was put to death, I suppose we would celebrate it uh, because uh, this, is, this is how God has chosen to uh, hand down to us the redemption of all people.
1: And then we get to the last chapter of our study, uh, Chapter Nine, as Mark presents the Transfiguration. And if you're listening to us uh, in the beginning of February or end of January, uh, tr- Transfiguration is right around the corner in the church year. It's the last Sunday of, or after the Epiphany, uh, preceding the Lenten season with Ash Wednesday. So. Pastor Lightning, what do you want to talk about with the beginning of chapter nine, with Jesus' transfiguration?
0: Uh, I I think it's a great time to talk about the Trinity, how God is a, a family all in Himself, uh, and uh, and He wants uh, to grow His earthly family uh, and and make us His children and adopt us. Um, I oh, one of the biggest things I always like to hit on with the uh, transfiguration is how it foreshadows the resurrection, and uh, how there are all these hints, whether it's Elijah going up uh, bodily into heaven, uh, or uh, Moses and and Jesus talking to his disciples about the Son of Man rising from the dead. uh, There are all these hints that, um, although we're about to see a horrific, gruesome death, uh, that will not be the last word.
1: One of the things that I've brought up once in a while in sermons, and I definitely teach this in my adult catechism class, is about how much God loves mountains. And I teach that the story of salvation can be told through the mountains of Scripture, of humans and animals repopulating the earth on Mount Ararat after the ark rested on that mountain range, Isaac and the ram being types of Christ on Mount Moriah, God giving his law on Mount Sinai, Jesus displaying his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus praying, betrayed and arrested on the Mount of Olives, Jesus dying and winning salvation on Mount Calvary, God's saints streaming into Mount Zion in heaven. God loves his mountains. And then I teach that there are two mountains in the divine service in our Lutheran worship. And this is one of the reasons that we celebrate Holy Communion every Sunday at our church at Epiphany. Uh, I I teach our people that we travel up the first mountain through the confession of sins, the prayer of the day, the song of praise. And then we reach the mountaintop as God speaks to us in the scripture lessons and the sermon, just as Jesus heard his father's voice on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then we begin traveling down the mountain like Jesus and his disciples with the creed and the offering. But then we start going up the second mountain in the preface, the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 the words of institution, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. And then we reach the mountaintop as God comes to us in the humble glory of bread and wine, in the body and blood of the sacrament. And then we Come down the mountain in the song of Simeon and the benediction. And then we go off to live in a world that is the valley of death and the plain of despair. And so I liken that to, again, the two mountains of the divine service. The first mountain is God speaking to us in his scripture lessons and sermon. And then the second mountain of God coming to us visibly in his sacrament. And that's one of the reasons why, again, we celebrate uh, communion every Sunday. We want to travel up and down both of those mountains. Uh,
0: I don't know if I have much more to say on the Transfiguration, uh, at least not at this moment. Uh, but I, I will say that uh, as we enter the next section of the boy with that had the demon uh, and the father that uh, couldn't get the disciples to drive the demon out, um, this is now the third. Time in in this podcast episode of Mark's Gospel that uh, we have encountered demonic activity, and uh, I I just like to say that uh, we are talking about this as as Lutherans as modern American Christians. We are not talking about uh, spiritual warfare nearly enough. Uh, d- demonic activity uh, and uh, how how is the devil and his minions at work. Uh, in the lives of people around it, yeah, we kind of d- d- throw it out there as sort of a, a catchphrase or a euphemism. I'm not sure what to call it, but uh, it, it's sort of like, well, yeah, the devil's very active. That's all we ever say. Uh, are there are there cases of uh, demonic possession today, uh, or is it are there just demonic oppressions that people may experience? Um, th- this is a whole realm of. Uh, Study that I, I think we have been neglecting, as um, at least in, in modern American Lutheranism, uh, that we could really spend a lot more time talking about because Scripture talks about it. And and Martin Luther talks about it for that matter. The Scriptures obviously superior to the Martin Luther, uh, but uh, if if it's the heritage that you want, uh, this is this is the way that our forefathers in the faith have talked about uh, demonic possession, uh, driving out demons, uh, and and I think this is something we need to look into more today.
1: Yeah, and with that, uh, I did a Bible study two years ago on the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It was a long, difficult book to get through, but I remember the picture that C.S. Lewis has of a demon sitting on a person's shoulder and then taking his finger and putting it into the person's ear and just kind of swirling it around. Uh, and then there's other other books, uh, Christian novels, of that the demons, maybe not possessing us, but they are in uh, the world around us, in our culture, influencing unbelievers and moving things around. If we believe that angels are protecting us, can move a car out of the way so that it doesn't hit us and so forth, well, the opposite side of the angels, God's or the devil's demons are there as well. And then with this too is the father asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus asks, "Well, do you believe?" And he says, "Yes, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief." And that's often my personal prayer when I come up to the Lord's table for Holy Communion: "Is Lord, I believe this is Your body and blood, but it sure does look like a little wafer and a little bit of wine. Lord, help me overcome my unbelief."
0: Uh, we have a echo of what uh, Jesus said to Peter about being the Christ in the uh, previous chapter. Uh, he predicts his death and resurrection again. Uh, then there's this uh, discussion about who is the greatest. And I think we can often get kind of uppity against the disciples that can you believe that they were arguing over who was the greatest? I, how in the world could anybody be so immature spiritually to argue about who is the greatest when Jesus just got done predicting his death? Um well, yeah, they, it certainly came from their sinful flesh, uh, but how would they have justified it? Maybe you might think, well, if Jesus is going to die, then uh, that, that kind of leaves us wondering who's going to be in charge of this uh, project of, of carrying out earthly work. Maybe we should discuss who, who would be in charge when... Uh, and maybe maybe you could play off of what you just said about the demons swirling People's ears. Oh yeah, this is a good idea. We should talk about who's going to be in charge or not. Uh, Well, then Jesus, of course, sets them straight. Uh, And then uh, I'll just keep going with uh, verses thirty-eight through forty, where John is asking, "Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us, Um, and uh, we were just discussing before the recording how." I, I think it's a good thing that we in the Wisconsin Synod are as conscious as we are about fellowship principles, and I, I wish more of us within the Wisconsin Synod would be that conscious. Uh, and and at the same time, uh, there's a good lesson to learn here that uh, we don't want to tell believers from other denominations to shut up, you know, to, don't... Don't tell uh, Baptists or Catholics that they should shut down their churches or stop talking about Christ. Jesus himself told his disciples, no, if somebody is doing a miracle in my name, then uh, don't stop them. Um, That doesn't mean that we uh, start using God's name together uh, in song or prayer or fellowship activities, Uh, But it it does mean that there are believers outside of our national church body, and uh, that's something to celebrate, not uh, try to uh, thwart. Yeah,
1: and then as you mentioned, Pastor Lightning, of who is the greatest? And Jesus says, yeah, this little child is the greatest. Whoever believes in me is the greatest. If you give a cup of cold water to to someone, that is... uh, you know, that person will not lose his reward. Uh, so really, what's the best way for you listeners to become the greatest in God's kingdom? Is you serve in God's kingdom.
0: And uh, I guess I'll just end the uh, whatever I have to say with... Um... It's interesting. These last verses from 42 uh, until 50 talk about that controversial thing Jesus was saying of, uh, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Uh, It's interesting. I actually had some students who were sort of horsing around a little bit, and I don't think they were being disrespectful to God's word, but they were just sort of opening to random Bible passages and reading them to each other. And one of them actually just it might have been a different gospel, but read this today uh, to his classmate, and uh, she responded, oh boy, if that's true, uh, I, I would have to cut off my head. <laughs> and and I, I looked straight at her, and I said, that's the point. That is exactly the point. This is not figurative language. Jesus is not saying... Uh, well, just imagine that you would cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. He's saying, no, if you really think that the problem is with your body parts, then cut your body parts off and you'll be free from the problem. And the point is, uh, as long as we live on this earth, uh, we will not be free from sin. Uh, and and so thankfully, uh, we have forgiveness for our sins and we don't have to cut off our body parts uh, because uh, we have a new spirit through Christ.
1: Well, Pastor Lane, you just brought this image into my mind of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where the, the false <laughs> priest reaches into people's hearts, into their chest cavity, and then pulls out the beating heart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't want, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So listeners, uh, we thank you for being with us this morning. The encouragement then for you is to read Mark chapters 10 through 14 next week. And you can also listen to Pastor Hagen as he reads that chapter each morning next week and then gives an explanation of it. Uh, So stay thirsty, my friends, and drink deeply from the water of life.